Ahoy everyone, hope you're having a decent time amidst this coronavirus crisis, and welcome to episode two of the podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be going over some more WoW lore, picking up right where I left off last time. Uh, and one thing I thought I'd like to do with this, um, when some people start listening to this, is I'd like to have kind of a lore question of the day, maybe sort of thing, or of the episode, uh, where people could uh, pretty much just tweet at me. Um, of course, my Twitter handle is at Manalore Podcast. Uh, no apostrophes, hyphens, or anything like that. Just Manalore Podcast. And maybe you could tweet like a uh, lore question, whether it be WoW, Old School RuneScape, or even another game. And then, kind of at the start of every episode, uh, I could answer that question. Um, it'd be something interesting to do. So, yeah, feel free to ask a lore question, and maybe it'll be in the episode. Hey, everyone, just putting a little cut in real quick. You'll notice around the 29-minute mark, the audio takes a quick dive and gets really crappy for some strange reason, even though I was kind of recording it all at once, so kind of odd. But anyway, that weird audio terrible quality only lasts about uh, 30 seconds, so hopefully you can grit and bear through it. It's not too long. Otherwise, I'd edit it. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, so we're going to be jumping off, like I said, right where I left off last time. So if you remember talking about the world of Azeroth... Um, and if you remember from last time, I mentioned that as the elemental plane was sealed off uh, to hold the elementals back, some of them had escaped this banishment and created creatures of, well, what they say, flesh and blood as opposed to the stone and iron-skinned keepers. Um, and one of the most important groups to come out of these elementals that escaped were the proto-dragons. And that's what we're going to be starting into today, uh, the proto-dragons and... The biggest, baddest one of them all, Galakrond. And during this time, life continued to flourish all across the surface, of course, but the proto-dragons were kind of the most important um, creatures of this time, and they existed up north in Kalimdor in the cold. Uh, and the proto-dragons themselves, they had, you know, a wide array of strength and abilities. Some were huge with incredible uh, fortitude and strength, and others were more spiritual. Others had tapped into elemental energies, but like I said just now, the biggest, the baddest of them all was Galakrond, who was the largest dragon who had ever soared in Azeroth's skies. Um, very strong, inceptional hunter, and ended up losing his mind. Um, the most disturbing thing he started to do really was uh, start <laughs> cannibalizing proto-dragons, eating his own kind. That was kind of the uh, first and greatest warning signal. The Keepers noticed this pretty quick, that and the fact that Galakron had a bunch of just terrible minions, uh, because a lot of the time his powers would reanimate the dead, and he'd kind of create these terrible abominations from his victims. So obviously uh, the Keepers noticed this pretty quick, but Tyr was the first one to notice the danger by Galakron. And he quickly warned his fellow Keepers, um, but unfortunately he couldn't motivate them to act. Which, if you need a refresher, of course, Tyr is one of the Keepers created by the Titans to watch over Azeroth. But unfortunately, as time went on, the Keepers became almost kind of complacent um, and really indifferent to what was going on on Azeroth. And most of them were focused now solely on maintaining the vaults that housed the old gods and whatever other arcane machineries they've worked on, but Tyr is still not deterred by his siblings' lack of concern, and he still knew that Galakrond was a big threat, 
And if he remained unchecked, you know, he could possibly devour, you know, all of nature and spread his, you know, terrible uh, corruption around Azeroth. So he moved forward with the plans to find a way to destroy Galakrond and all of his minions. And by doing that, he first looked to proto-dragons that were... Uh, stood out from the rest so there were five important ones that he found that were very intelligent and looked promising to help him uh, they would be Alexstrasza, Naltharian, Malagos, Izera, and Nazdormu and for the most part they are pretty different from each other and each had unique powers um, even though Alexstrasza and Izera were technically sisters they commanded quite different abilities um, Alexstrasza, for example, could summon large, you know, bouts of fire. Naltharian had incredible strength. Uh, Malagos was cunning and could breathe frost. Nazdormu could use souped-up pocket sand, uh, would use, you know, blinding storms of sand. And Yzera could pretty much just sap people's willpower and life force, almost. And with these five being as strong as they were, uh, Tyr looked to them for aid in helping to defeat Galakrond. And at first they were suspicious of Tyr um, because of the obvious difference between the two of them. But soon, despite those differences, the five proto-dragons would actually agree to help Tyr. And under Tyr's guidance, Alexstrasza and all of her companions warred with Galakron and his minions. Um, those battles raged over the peaks of northern Kalimdor. Initially, Galakron's tough, tough hide was actually too strong for the proto-dragons to break through. Uh, they were disheartened a bit at first by how strong he was, but they soon found out he had a weakness, and this weakness would end up being that his eyes and his gullet were soft. Um, they could strike those to take him down, and that's exactly what they did. Using all five of their powers, they defeated him, and his lifeless husk plummeted into the ground in what would later be known as the area called Dragonblight. Yes, the same Dragonblight we see in Northrend in WoW. And the five dragons under Tyr's guidance had won and defeated Galakron. And this would start um, where we would see the dragon aspects creation. So uh, while Tyr and the proto-dragons were battling Galakron this whole time, the other keepers finally emerged, but realized that they were too late. Um, and they had kind of let Tyr down, but despite letting him down, Tyr never actually chastised the other keepers, instead he convinced them actually to imbue the five dragons with power so that they could safeguard the lands of Azeroth. Which is probably a better idea since most of the other keepers weren't too worried about a potential threat the whole time. But not all the keepers wanted to give the dragons power. Um, Keeper Odin himself challenged the idea greatly and saw the dragons as primitive life forms. And he thought only that their strong, mighty Titanforge could protect Azeroth and severely protested against giving them power. Um, but despite his objections, even though he thought he had the final decision for being the prime, kind of the big man, <laughs> big man on campus, the other keepers went ahead with it still, um, regardless of his opinion. And so the keepers went forward anyway, gave the dragons power. Uh, High Keeper Ra gave his power from Ammon Thule into the proto-dragon Nazdormu, which of course Nazdormu now would be the master of time itself. Uh, he'd become known as the Timeless One and held dominion over the interweaving pathways of fate and destiny. Quite a nice power. Freya would call upon the power of her creator Ionar to empower Alexstrasza, who would then be known as the Lifebinder, 
And Ekstraza, of course, would devote everything she had into the stewardship of the living world. But not only that, she was also uh, granted, or more crowned, Dragon Queen and given command over her kind due to the bravery, compassion, and everything she showed during the battles against Galakrond. And Freya also gave Alexstrasza's younger sister power too. Of course, Alexstrasza's younger sister, Ysera, would be given the power um, of influence over nature. And she was kind of given the uh, task of watching over Azeroth's wilds from within the Emerald Dream. And she would be bound to the Emerald Dream, where she kind of descended into this trance and would be known as the Dreamer. Keeper Loken would call upon the power from his creator, Norganon, to give Malagos with incredible arcane power, very strong power. Malagos would be known as the Spellweaver. And lastly, uh, Keeper Arcadis would use some of his power from Kazgaroth to give Neltharion um, power of the earth. Uh, the dragon would be known as the Earth Warder and was kind of given charge over mountains, deep caverns, things like that. He was pretty much the embodiment of strength in the world and for a long time was Alexstrasza's greatest friend. And this is of course when the dragons got kind of their signature look and signature colors after this and from this day forward from their change, they would be known as the Dragon Aspects, and the Dragon Aspects would pretty much be there to help protect the world. And the Keepers also wanted to create a new species to help the Dragon Aspects, so what they did is they would alter hundreds of proto-dragon eggs, and this is how you would get dragons, you know, colored dragons, like the bronze, red, green, black, and blue. Of course, they were ball born in the image of their aspect that they were kind of made after. And this, of course, was when Wormerus Temple was created, which at the time was Northern Kalimdor, because remember, Azeroth is all one giant uh, mega continent right now. Of course, later, um, that's when it fractures apart. That'd be Northrend, but specifically, of course, Dragonblight and Northrend. But for now, one continent. And so all the dragons would center around Wormerus Temple. And the Keepers, who are kind of now satisfied with their work and what they've created, would disappear back into their lairs and leave the Aspects in charge of watching over Azeroth to protect it. Except, there was one Keeper who was still quite unhappy. This, of course, was Odin. Uh, he was furious that his allies went forward with it and acted against his wishes, because after all, he was kind of, at least he was considered the Prime Designate, a title given to him from the Titans, from before they left. So... In essence, he was kind of considered to be the one in charge, although if there's one thing you realize from reading this and about the Titans is that they're not very clear. So just because they, you know, made him Prime Designate, they never actually set up much of a power structure. They kind of just left him there and gave him a fancy title. Um, but this fancy title got to his head a little bit, and he was still furious about what his allies had done. And so for the good of Azeroth, he would take matters into his own hands, because he thought with all of his heart, too, that the dragon aspects would fail and Azeroth would fall. So in order to prevent that from happening, he would create an elite army of his own design. And he would look to the Vrykul. Um, he kind of always admired the Vrykul. He saw them to be above the other Titan Forged and saw them as kind of the perfect warriors, you know, kind of the perfect essence of warrior spirit. And while this was going on, Tyr was returning back to Alduar, and when Tyr and the others returned back, they demanded that Odin stop his foolish plan, but of course this would have no effect on Odin, because he was pretty single-minded, 
especially when he thought he was in the right, and in this case, he thought he was definitely in the right. He did extend an offer to the other keepers to join him and help him make his army, but no one else stepped forward. Uh, in that case, Odin announced that he would pursue without them, and he would continue on. Odin secured one of Olduar's wings to act as a base for his new army. He separated it from the rest of the fortress, from the other keepers, by calling on the sorceress Helia. Odin kind of saw Helia like his adopted daughter at this point, so Helia wove a very, very powerful spell and encased the keeper's stronghold um, to be separate from the other one. And then, focusing all of her power, she ripped the colossal chunk from Olduar and lifted it into the cloudy skies. And this would be what would be known as the Halls of Valor, which we saw inside and out during the Legion expansion. So that's how the Halls of Valor was made. From his newly arisen fortress, I suppose you could say, from the Halls of Valor, Odin bellowed a proclamation to all the Vrykul, and he would say that whoever would die, you know, in battle, you know, typical kind of Viking uh, mindset there, anyone who would die in battle would live again in the Halls of Valor, their spirits would be transported to the fortress and given mighty new Stormforged bodies. Not a bad deal. These champions would be called the Valarhar and would serve as Azeroth's foremost guardians. Although Odin hadn't quite figured out the means of ferrying the spirits of the dead to the Halls of Valor. However, he began studying um, the energies that came from the Shadowlands. So it is, you know, the next expansion literally being called Shadowlands taking place in the Shadowlands. It's interesting that... This was a place that already existed at this point, um, and even you know someone as powerful as Odin didn't really know anything about it. But he did learn that he could transform some Vrykul into the Valkyr, and these wraith-like servants uh, could travel between both worlds, and by that both the Shadowlands and their physical world, and guide the souls of the worthy Vrykul that fell in battle to the Halls of Valor. But those who did become a Valkyr would be cursed to kind of live as those, you know, phantom beings for all eternity. And surprisingly, well, maybe perhaps unsurprisingly, no Vrykul volunteered for the task. And Odin decided he would have to go through and create his servants by force. And Helia did not like this. Uh, Helia, you know, kind of looked like, she thought it kind of looked like him using slaves against their own will. And the argument between them was exceptionally heated and almost came to blows. Um, and in the end, Helia warned that if Odin didn't stop, she would return the Halls of Valor back to Alduar if Odin didn't change his mind. Of course, Odin saw this disobedience as a threat, not only to his plans personally, but to future safety of Azeroth itself. So blinded by his dreams, kind of, he struck out at the sorceress, shattered her physical form, and twisted her spirit into the very first Valkyr. And it's said that her cries of pain and anger echoed out across the surface of Azeroth and pierced in the very heart of the Shadowlands itself. And this terrible transformation would forever darken Helia, but unfortunately her torment was not finished. She hated Odin for what uh, he had done to her, obviously, but she found herself compelled to obey his will. And under Odin's command she was forced to set out and transform the unwilling Vrykul into Valkyr. And for ages, Helia and her fellow Valkyr would bring the souls of heroic Vrykul to the Halls of Valor. Um, the Citadel itself would be, you know, filled with the storm-infused Valahar, 
and Odin would train and empower these warriors, and he had no remorse whatsoever for breaking from the rest of the Keepers, for transforming Helia, or for, you know, tr forcibly transforming the Rykul into Valkyr. In Odin's mind, the ends justified the means, and everything he had done was not only for the safety of Azeroth itself, but to honor the great pantheon, the Titans, that made him. And for now, we'll step away from Odin. He would continue doing this for a long time. But it's time to turn our attention back to good old Sargeras. During this whole time, Sargeras had been kind of stewing about the betrayal, or what he considered betrayal, when he left the other titans of the Pantheon. He would think about how life itself was fatally flawed, that creation of life was flawed, and came to the conclusion that the only way to save the universe, to spare it from the wrath of the Void Lords, would be to purge it in fire. And this would be the official start of his burning crusade. Now, to accomplish this burning crusade, Sargeras would require, you know, an army. He needed a large force of absolute rage, and he knew of one place, of course he knew, he created it, one place where such rage existed, and this was Mardum, the Plane of Banishment, where he had imprisoned all the demons when he figured out he couldn't kill them. So, he went and looked and saw that Mardum had been warped very bad. It had been warped into a realm of absolute nightmare. Fell energy ceaselessly bombarded the prison walls. Um, the, the captive demons inside were rolling in a sea of the fell volatile magic. And Sargeras saw this and had brief apprehension, but stopped it. He quelled it and split the prison asunder and spilled all of the prison's imprisoned demons uh, back into the great dark beyond, the physical universe. But what he didn't expect was that the explosion of fell magic was so, so powerful and so far beyond what he had imagined that the volatile energy enveloped him. It enveloped Sargeras, surged through his veins, and seared his very soul itself. And of course his eyes, you know, became that emerald fire green we always see. Um, fell volcanoes ignited across his noble form, because remember, he's an enormous, you know, enormous titan. And, and he was turned from, you know, a typical titan into just a fell-infused, um, rage-filled being. And even though this would be disturbing to any other person, Sargeras saw past it, and he was remained focused on his objective, and his objective, of course, to prevent the Void Lords from possessing creation. And for that to happen, he had to extinguish all life. And, unknowingly, he actually ruptured the boundary between the Great Dark and the Twisting Nether. If you remember, the Twisting Nether is where all the demons come from. And yeah, he t tore a hole through the fabric of reality itself. And then demons, of course, you know, all sorts, shape, size, kind, poured into the physical universe from this rift. You know, howling in triumph. And Sargeras was quick to imbue them with his power and uniting them kind of into one, you know, one force, the Burning Crusade. And even though the demons themselves were familiar with fell magic, none of them had ever experienced the pure power found in Sargeras's new fell magic. Um, and because of that, they grew, they became smarter, tougher, um, much more powerful than they previously had been. And while they did not owe Sargeras a thing, he gave them a pretty simple, <laughs> pretty simple offer, 
if you did not join him and fight at his command, you would be extinguished. Because at this point, Sargeras knew how to destroy a demon for good. You know, you kill him in the Twisting Nether, they're gone for good. So it was not a difficult choice, as demons love to do exactly what Sargeras wanted them to do. You know, to attack life, burn, pillage, destroy. So easy choice for the demons. And now his Burning Crusade would move forward and start destroying worlds. Um, and as the Legion fell upon its first world, even though it didn't contain a slumbering titan, it was a world that was once ordered, and um, the Pantheon kind of messed with in the past. Sargeras' forces incinerated all the mortal civilizations that dwelled there, wiped out, you know, tons of sentient species, um, and when the Constellar, who the Pantheon put in charge of the world, arrived, Sargeras himself annihilated the celestial being without any sort of remorse or second thought. And the first to learn of this Constellar's demise was Agrimar, which if you remember, Agrimar was once Sargeras' lieutenant, his left-hand man, probably his only and closest friend. And as Agrimar learned about this, um, he hadn't quite figured out Sargeras was the one in charge, but he tracked down the demonic army, not too hard to do considering their size and, you know, the trail of ashes pretty much they left behind. But he arrived just in time to finish the Legion scouring another world, and he saw the one leading them was his greatest friend, his mentor, Sargeras. And Agrimar was stunned and demanded Sargeras explain what was going on. But Sargeras did not offer any explanation. He only declared that his burning crusade was the sole mean to purify the universe and save it. And of course Sargeras added that anyone who would stand against the burning crusade would be destroyed. Agrimar quickly realized that Sargeras had pretty much lost his mind and that there would be no way to sway him with words. So Agrimar challenged his former mentor, greatest friend, to single combat. They fought in the eyes of many probably happy demons who love chaos. But Agrimar didn't last too long. He found himself pretty outmatched. Sargeras had always been stronger, but it wasn't only that. Because um, all titans were uniquely susceptible to fell magic, and of course Sargeras now was the most powerful source of, you know, fell within a being in the universe. And Agrimar, whose strength was waning, brought all of his power together and struck at one final blow at Sargeras. And in fact, when their two blades met, there was such a crazy explosion of fell and arcane power that when the torrent of energy finally disappeared, they both saw that their weapons had been completely shattered. Agrimar was heavily wounded from the battle and was forced to retreat. Uh, obviously, he quickly went back to the Pantheon. He told the other Titans what happened, and they were in you know utter disbelief that their most powerful noble warrior could fall to such dark levels, and it shook their faith in everything. And the Pantheon didn't know how to stop him, but they also agreed that they could not stand idly by because you know Sargeras would only kind of get stronger as time went on. So the Pantheon together confronted Sargeras and his legion near a world name, not sure how you pronounce it quite, but looks to be pronounced Nihalam. So the Pantheon met Sargeras out by Nihalam, and then Ammon Thule, the leader of the Pantheon, called out to Sargeras and, you know, tried to say, tried to convince him to abandon his crusade, you know, pleaded with him. He told Sargeras that Azeroth was going to be stronger than any of the Pantheon had ever seen, perhaps even strong enough to defeat the Void Lords in due time. Sargeras did listen, but was completely unmoved by the words. Although it is interesting, I know I talked about briefly in the last 
podcast episode, you know, if they were to ever end the Warcraft series at all. Well, I don't know if they'd ever end it, but bring the Void Lord arc to an end. Perhaps Azeroth, after she's born into a Titan, will be the one to do it. But anyway, Agrimar could tell that Sargeras wasn't listening to the Pantheon. And despite their earlier battle, Agrimar believed that, you know, something inside Sargeras was still there, you know, heart, and somehow he could reach out and perhaps bring Sargeras back into the fold. So as a last resort, Agrimar laid down his arms and approached Sargeras. He recounted the tales of their glorious battles against the demons, reminded Sargeras of the sacred oaths they had sworn to protect all creation, but it didn't work. Uh, Sargeras was too dead set on his burning crusade, and nothing that the Pantheon could say, even Agrimar himself, could change his mind. And in a rage, Sargeras struck Agrimar down, nearly cleaved him in two. And quite obviously, the Pantheon was infuriated, you know. No Titan had ever, well, first of all, no Titan had ever died, let alone Titan kill a Titan before. And in their own rage, the Pantheon attacked Sargeras and his Burning Legion in an all-out assault. Stars withered and died as the battle raged across the cosmos, says the Chronicle. Stretches of reality were scarred, and Nihalam was known after as the Doom World because it became so warped and twisted by the apocalyptic conflict. The Titans of the Pantheon wielded powers incomprehensible to mortal minds, but they still could not overcome Sargeras's fell-fueled might because Titans were are weak against fell. And the fallen Titan decimated the Pantheon. Every single one, he decimated them with fell fire until he had broken their will to fight. And to seal their demise, Sargeras summoned a massive, massive storm of fell that would consume their bodies and souls. And as the fell energy washed over the defeated titans, Norganon made one last attempt to stop Oblivion. Norganon bent the energy of the universe to his will and created a shroud around the pantheon titan spirits and launched them off into the great dark. And while the titans' disembodied souls traveled through the cosmos, the fell storm obliterated what was left of their physical form. But... Sargeras was unaware that the Titan's spirits had survived, and he declared the Burning Legion victorious. The Pantheon, in his mind, was no more. And now he had clues about a much more powerful world soul called Azeroth, which to him, you know, a powerful world soul, a powerful Titan, if corrupted by the Void, would be, you know, devastating and universe-ending. But, although Sargeras had learned about Azeroth and its name, he did not know where exactly it was in the universe, and despite his size and everything in his hand, the universe, the Great Dark, is still a big place. But without the Pantheon now to oppose him, there was nothing to stand in his way, and figured that he would in time find Azeroth, find the World Soul, and destroy it before the Void Lords could corrupt it. And this is where the Draenei come in pretty shortly, or at this point, called the Iridar, their natural uh, race name. You see, Sargeras quickly learned that despite his power, despite his absolute power um, in his army, there was still one fatal flaw. He wanted to rally more demons to his cause and expand his army, but he realized that despite his power, his intellect, he couldn't direct his entire army at once. While demons were vicious, 
bloodthirsty and violent, exactly what he needed. They lacked strategic thinking, even basic thinking for some of them. So much of the Legion had fallen needlessly to the Pantheon because of this. And Sargeras wanted cunning and tactically minded commanders to join his side so that he would not have to do everything by himself and waste demons. And fortunately for Sargeras, he had seen a place where he could get such allies, or perhaps such servants. And this world was called Argus, home of the Iridar, who would later be known as the Draenei, of course. And the Iridar were very smart. I mean, they were technologically advanced, they sought intelligence, you know, more than anything, and in fact, they were a race more intelligent than any Sargeras had previously encountered. And because of this, he knew that they could be twisted to serve him. And Argus at the time was ruled by a triumvirate of leaders, three leaders. One was Archimond, who had a gift for finding the strengths in those around him, says the Chronicle. He had kind of a bold demeanor and would, you know, inspire and fill his followers with confidence. Kill Jaden was probably the smartest of the rulers, um, considered a prodigy by even the smartest of his people and would often think about the mysteries of the cosmos. And lastly, there was Valen, who was kind of like the spiritual center of the triumvirate, and championed peace before conflict. And even individually, these leaders could have made an excellent leader, but it was when they worked together that they elevated their uh, people, the Iridar, to heights that, you know, they couldn't previously dream of. And it was this great cohesion between them that would solve Sargeras's problem, it would solve the Legion's weakness. But Sargeras knew that they were too smart to obviously outright join him. I mean, you wouldn't really want to join a guy who's saying, hey, let's kill everything. So Sargeras played on them. He realized he'd have to corrupt them entirely. It would be the only way for them to serve him. So he pretended to be something he wasn't. He pretended to be this elegant, wonderful being when he started to communicate with them. And when he talked to the three of them, he played on their desires, their specific desires, promising them knowledge, unimaginable power. He showed them worlds, you know, way that they would never seen before, primitive places that they could transform into sanctuaries of peace and intellectual, you know, thought, things like that. He really played upon each of their specific instances. Um, and of course, since they worked so hard together, he would, you know, start to tempt them all. And the only one of the three that wasn't really tempted was Valen. Archimon and Kill Jaden were, you know, they awed over it. They thought it was a grand undertaking, and they were convinced pretty quickly, but Valen was not. He sensed that there was something strange about Sargeras. Um, something was not right. So what Valen did was he actually meditated using a crystal, um, a crystal actually gifted to his people by the Naru, if you remember, the Naru are a, uh, beings of pure, holy light energy, um, so he used this crystal, the Atamal crystal, and through this relic, he tried to figure out what was going on. But he, what he received was a terrible vision of the Eridar's future if they sided with Sargeras. He saw how disfigured they'd become, he saw how deprived and evil they'd be, how demonic they'd become, and what sort of terrible depths they'd fall to. So obviously he warned, you know, the other two members of the Triumvirate what he'd seen, but unfortunately they dismissed his insights and made it clear that they were going to accept Sargeras's offer. And fearing that Archon and Kill Jaden would kill him if he continued to, you know, try to tell him what was going on, Valen pretended to go along with it. 
And because even though, you know, he was friends with Kill Jaden Archimond, he unfortunately did not believe his personal bond with them would overcome um, Sargeras' enticing promises. And having kind of seen the future, Valen really despaired um, at what lied ahead. And in this moment, the same beings who granted him the vision in the first place reached out to him again. One of the Naru in particular, um, Ka'ur, I hope that I pronounced that right, K-apostrophe-U-R-E, contacted him and offered to lead him and his allies to safety, um, knowing that, you know, all, all they could do was run. And luckily, Valen, you know, was renewed with some hope, and he sought out his other Iridar, who he thought he could trust. Uh, and as Sargeras arrived on Argus to corrupt the Iridar, Valen and his followers made their escape. Of course, they boarded their large, you know, dimensional fortress, the Genadar, the large ship, and they fled from their home world forever. And from that day forward, this is when the Iridar Valen took away would be known as the Draenei, a.k.a. the Exiled Ones. And as Valen and his comrades were escaping, Argaris began to corrupt the Iridar to his will. Um, you know, his, he used his powerful fell to surge through the minds of all those who still inhabited Argus, drowned out their ability to reason so they'd follow him easier, and he would infuse the Iridar with fell energy, and this is where they got their kind of signature form with their twisting horns to resemble demons more than they previously uh, looked. And with these new, uh, intelligent, corrupted Iridar, Sargeras found quick use and, you know, settled them in as commanders for the Burning Legion. And of course, Kill Jaden and Archimon would stand out as the most gifted, powerful, smartest of the Iridar. Kill Jaden would then be known as the Deceiver, and he was tasked with using his great intelligence to... And I don't know if you want to say charmed or deceived... Um, but what his task was, was to take mortal civilizations of their universe and turn them into uh, agents that the Burning Legion could use. Meanwhile, Archimond, who would now be known as the Defiler, uh, still you know, great at motivating people and strengthening the Burning Crusade through that, would use his powerful will to kind of rile up the demons you know, so that they would be even better at, you know, acts of violence and barbarism and draw out all the temper and strength they had in them and, you know, turn them into even greater weapons than they already were. And with the new Eridar leaders in place, uh, the Burning Legion grew. They had new demonic races gathered from the Twisting Nether and those corrupted worlds of the Great Dark. Archimond would empower the big monstrous pit lords, and, you know, and turn them into pretty much living siege engines, absolute, you know, capable of crazy destruction. And they would inspire dread in all those they faced. And then you had the Moarg, who, very resourceful and industrious race of demons, became the Legion's armorers. Uh, you know, we see them always tinkering on stuff, especially in the Outlands, was kind of when we first saw them in the game like that, highly. Um, and they would, you know, enforge, uh, they would forge kind of fell-infused weaponry and make their crazy constructs. You know, think of like the Fell Reavers and stuff like that. That way, you know, now instead of just having demons, they had, you know, the, the Reavers, machines, you know, specialized weaponry, making the Burden and Legion even stronger than it was before. And this is when you would see the certain demons like the Succubi, uh, Doom Guards, 
you know, they'd be pulled into the Burning Legion now and specialized and utilized very well under the leadership of the Iridar. And with these new commanders in place, Sargeras found his Burning Legion was stronger than ever, and this would kind of renew his Burning Crusade. And they would continue on to destroy, corrupt countless other worlds and civilizations, you know, either destroy them outright or, you know, corrupt them into new kinds of demons and bring them into the fold. But the one thing Sargeras did not know is that the Pantheon still clung to life in that their spirits were still alive and out there. And although he had destroyed their physical forms, their, you know, Nurgannon's grand spell had preserved their souls. And at this point, their spirits actually hurtled towards Azeroth and its keepers. And it was there the Pantheon hoped they could locate physical forms to inhabit since their other bodies were gone. And if they knew they were limited on time, and if they didn't find something they could move their spirits in, they worried that they could just fade away into oblivion for good. And it was at this time, their spirits actually crashed into Azeroth, straight into the bodies of some uh, keepers that had been created. And the keepers themselves were overwhelmed, um, because the spirits were so weak at this point that they didn't overtake the keepers, but instead fragments of their memories and their powers were kind of imbued into these keepers, who would, you know, suddenly be really... You know, they didn't know what was going on, you know, they had all these memories and other powers, they didn't know where it had come from quite, I mean, they figured it was from the Pantheon, it was some kind of gift, but they were still puzzled, uh, they were unaware of where their creators were, so obviously they called out to the Pantheon for answers, but they didn't receive a reply, because as of course, their spirits were already, you know, into these keepers that were calling out, and it was this deep silence that really troubled them, um, because, you know, the Pantheon, their creators were now mysteriously gone, and, you know, receiving this strange power, they thought something was, you know, odd was going on. And it wasn't just the Keepers that sensed this. The first old god to be mentioned was yogg Saron. It sensed the fluctuating emotions in the Keepers that imprisoned it. Um, and an awareness had begun to stir within the entity. And yogg Saron actually began to devise a plan to weaken its jailers so it could escape imprisonment. And to do so, it would try to corrupt the Forge of Wills. And it tainted, it actually did work, and it ended up tainting the creation matrix itself, and this is how we get the curse of flesh. And any of the Titan Forge that would be created by this machine would fall victim to this. And of course, this is how, you know, all the flesh-based races of, of Azeroth, such as like humans and stuff, would be created from eventually, you know, down the road a while. Um, because these keepers would be infected by the curse of flesh and blood, or the curse of flesh, rather. And the reason why this was important is because the old god knew it was a lot easier to kill uh, a being made of flesh and blood than it was stone and metal like the tough previous keepers had been. And to actually get this plan into action, yogg Saron turned to Keeper Loken. Um, out of all Oldwar's guardians, Loken had been the most troubled by the lack of communication from the Pantheon, and yogg Saron began to assault the Keeper through dreams and, you know, doing whatever he could to uh, put despair in Loken's heart because he hoped that, you know, Loken would eventually fall just due to his um, freaking out of not knowing if the Pantheon was still alive. But his actual downfall, Loken's actual downfall, that is, would come from a much more kind of subtle place. Uh, as he began to kind of drift deeper and deeper into the despair, he sought comfort from a specific Rykul named Sif. And Sif 
was the mate of his brother, Keeper Thorin. And Loken would often meet with Sif in private. He would tell her of his darkest fears. And in time, a, a actual forbidden love between the two would forge. And it was this forbidden love that Yog saron saw as a great opening. Uh, he would kind of latch onto this and twist this love into a really dangerous, uh, creepy obsession, sort of. And of course, their relationship would begin to sour, obviously, because of this. Loken would openly kind of ask for her to go forward with him and declare their love. And obviously she was very, very opposed because, you know, she was still with his brother Thorim this whole time. Um, and eventually she would actually just cut all ties with Loken, demanding that he leave her in peace. You know, she couldn't take any more of it. She, you know, he was getting too obsessive, uh, demanding too much. And this is what ultimately drove Loken to madness. Um, you know, in a fit of absolute rage and jealousy of his brother being able to be with Sif, he lashed out at Sif and ultimately killed her. And after killing her, uh, Loken tried to cover up her death. You know, he, he figured out he couldn't tell Thorin what he'd done, or let alone the other keepers, because it might shatter the unity they had. Um, and it was at this time of need that Sif's spirit would appear before his eyes, and this spirit would forgive him, warn him that he needed to act with haste, um, and that if he did, it would, you know, descend the Titanforged into civil war. But Sif's suggestion um, seemed a little devious, something Loken thought was, you know, a characteristic she hadn't previously possessed, and he sensed something was wrong with her spirit. Um, spoiler alert, it's Yogg-Saron, <laughs> but he didn't know this yet, and he pushed away his doubts. And on Sif's, a.k.a. Yogg-Saron pretending to be Sif's, guidance, Loken dragged the corpse out into the wastes of the Storm Peaks, and he would inform Thorim, a.k.a. his brother, Sif's husband, that it was actually the King of the Ice Giants that was to blame. Um, his name was Arngrim. And of course, strucken with absolute grief, Thorim would unleash his fury on Arngrim, and all the other followers of the King of the Ice Giants. And Sif's spirit would continue to aid Loken as the conflict raged, aka Yogg-Saron, you know, further corrupting him. And Loken still forged ahead, even though it seemed a little suspicious. You know, he was probably so guilt-written that he didn't want to think too much into it, but during this whole time, this Yogg-Saron's plan was working. And so she convinced Loken to use the Forge of Wills, you know, and create an army, very large army, you know, one strong enough, large enough to protect Alduar from all the warring giants around them, which, you know, this is when Yogg-Saron's plan really starts to work. And to kind of get Thorim out of the way, um, the spirit of Sif created by Yogg-Saron would persuade Loken to berate his brother for starting the war and lashing out with such anger. And he would really, really be hard on him. It would actually drive Thorum into, you know, a great depression. And it was actually so great that he would leave Alduar and go, you know, be alone. Go find solitude somewhere. And now with Thorum out of the picture, Loken created his new army to overwhelm the giants and end their conflict. And any that resisted his will would be locked away. But... As these battles progressed between the giants and his newly created army, Loken noticed that his army, you know, there was something wrong. He noticed that there was some kind of affliction. Of course, this was Yogg-Saron's corruption, the curse of flesh. 
Um, didn't quite know what it was at the time, so he called out to Sif again for guidance, but this time she did not speak back. And he began to realize that she never really existed. Of course, she didn't this whole time. It was an illusion created by yogg Saran. He didn't know that, though. So he just realized that he might have been either losing his mind or seeing that he wanted to see. And he didn't know it yet, but the Forge of Wills, of course, had been imbued with the Curse of Flesh, weakening all of his soldiers and eventually, you know, turning them into weaker forms of flesh and blood instead of the stone, metal, tough ones that were previously made. And it was now, with all the evidence around him, Loken realized that he'd been played. And he realized that, you know, with his selfishness of everything, he allowed yogg Saron to absolutely use him. And this discovery shattered whatever was left in him, uh, good-wise, and he became obsessed with keeping what he had done a secret. And he was so obsessed with it that he would even embrace the power of Yogg-Saron if necessary to destroy all evidence of his wrongdoing. Um, and even, you know, with the might of Yogg-Saron, he could also defeat the remaining Keepers. And by doing that, of course, he'd cover everything up because no one would be there to find out otherwise. And with his new terrible plan to defeat the other Keepers, Loken realized that the first target he'd have to get rid of was Odin, and of course Odin's um, incredible, mighty Valarhar army. But he knew that a direct attack against the floating citadel, the Halls of Valor of course, would be impossible. <laughs> a terrible idea. So Loken began to look for a more cunning approach, and he reached out to Helia, Odin's adopted daughter, because he knew Helia was a powerful sorceress, um, now turned into a Valkyr, and of course, because of her being forcefully turned into a Valkyr, she had a reason to go along with Loken and get her revenge on Odin. And so Loken called out to her and played on her anger, her betrayal, um, and he would promise that he would break the chains of servitude that bound her to Odin, and in exchange, she would seal the Halls of Valor off from the world forever. And that way, after, Helia could overtake Odin's role as the caretaker of all the Vrykul spirits, and obviously this enticed her greatly, and she agreed to Loken's plans. And after Loken managed to restore Helia's free will, she called upon her powerful power to secure the elemental plane in ages past, and she would bend and use the arcane energy around Azeroth to seal off the Halls of Valor completely and the inhabitants within. Odin, of course, struggled greatly with his Valorhar and desperately tried to escape their citadel, but they could not break the barrier Helia had created. It was far too strong. And there, um, Odin and his Valorhar would remain trapped within their beautiful golden corridors of the Halls of Valor. And Helia was now liberated from her life of servitude. And she would, you know, forge a home for herself and the other Valkyr that had been turned by Odin. And so she created a kind of enchanted refuge far below the Halls of Valor in Azeroth, uh, bound into the Great Sea. And eventually, you know, it would be hidden from sight, shrouded by the ocean mists and her power, and this would become Helheim. And this would be the destination that many Vrykul spirits would go to after death. But it is worth noting, not all the Valkyr followed Helia after Odin's defeat. Um, some would disappear into the Shadowlands. Of course, the Shadowlands, very interesting. We'll be learning about that a lot more shortly. I'd even like to do an episode specifically about it pretty soon. 
Um, and of course, the Valkyr in the Shadowlands would at time guide uh, the dead back to the land of the living. You know, how we see it in-game quite often. But unfortunately, Helheim did not stay a nice place. Um, Helia was filled with so much darkness from everything that would happen. She would actually transform Helheim into a terrible place. And not only that, but the souls of the dead Vrykul who found themselves there were instead turned into these terrible, vengeful, wraith-like beings. And of course, these cursed spirits would be known as the Kvaldir. They became one with the ocean mists, um, which of course you see a lot in Legion. Every time you kill them, they go, from the mists or something like that. Um, so that's what happened to them. Far different from the Halls of Valor that they were originally promised by Odin. Um, and these Kvaldir would raid and plunder the shores of Kalimdor, uh, filled with kind of just an eternal anguish in their soul from being trapped in Helheim. And now with Odin taken care of, Loken turned back to his plan. Um, of course, his plan was to orchestrate the downfall of the other keepers and get them out of the way. And now that Odin had been, you know, stuck up in the halls of Valor and couldn't get out, he could go through with his plans because Odin was the greatest threat of them all. And the first of which to fall, well, sort of, was Murmuron. You see, Murmuron actually at this time was investigating the strange anomalies in Loken's new Titanforge to have been corrupted by uh, the Curse of Flesh. And so while he was investigating this, Loken realized that it wouldn't be, you know, long until Murmuron realized what happened. So Loken actually sabotaged Murmuron's workshop and killed him in what appeared to be an accident. That's how he managed to set it up. However, Murmuron wasn't actually dead. Um, his mechanomes discovered that his master spirit, their master spirit rather, lived on, and they scrambled to build, uh, you know, Murmuron's big mechanized body to house the Keeper's soul. And while it did technically save Murmuron, he would never be the same again. Um, coming so close to death had kind of broken him, and he ended up just secluding himself in Alduar's big workshops and kind of just lost himself into, you know, working on his inventions and things like that, never to be the same. But Loken realized that with Murmuron's fate, um, the other keepers would soon realize something was going on, so he quickly dispatched his army to destroy his remaining uh, brethren, his fellow keepers. First, he confronted Freya at her um, very, you know, lush domain in the Storm Peaks at the Temple of Life. And there was quite the battle between the two keepers. Um, so, you know, great that it kind of sundered the temple, um, bleeding its precious life energies away. Freya struggled against her foe, but ultimately fell to Loken because he had so much power granted to him by Yogg-Saron. And Yogg-Saron actually took this opportunity and played upon Freya um, and kind of drew her back into the halls of Alduar, and there she would spend her days tending to the large garden in the center of the fortress, which you of course see in the raid. And as this was going on the whole time, Loken had his titan-forged wage war on Hodir in his lair, the Temple of Winter, and it was actually two fire giants, Ignis and Vulcan, that led the assaults, and it sapped Hodir's wintry strength, decimated his followers, and then later, Loken found and subdued Hodir directly, and it was very easy for him. And like before, Yogg-Saron warped Hodir's mind, forced the Keeper to retreat back into Ulduar, where he would remain in seclusion. But two of the remaining Keepers would not fall uh, victim to Loken's schemes. That would be Tyr and Arcadis. See, Tyr had actually long suspected that there was kind of a darkness growing 
within Loken, and as soon as he witnessed Loken attack Hodir, his worst fears were realized. But Tyr knew he wasn't in really a position to confront Loken directly. He saw Loken had this great big army that he'd created. So Tyr took Arcadus and their close friends, uh, a titan-forged giantrist named Ironia, and he would take the two to the outskirts of the Storm Peaks and watch Loken's schemes unfold, and they would plan their next move. However, Loken did dispatch forces to hunt down Tyr and his companions, and the Titan Forge scoured and looked all throughout the Storm Peaks, but they never actually found Tyr and his buddies. They believed that Tyr had fled the region. So Loken, you know, thinking this was true, asserted sole dominion over Alduar. He altered the machines within the fortress, and he made himself the new prime designate of Azeroth, which of course Odin was previously. He also disabled the tainted Forge of Wills, and banished many of his ser servants to the Storm Peaks outside Alduar. And then he would seal off Alduar. However, Loken began to kind of languish in regret within Alduar's halls. Despite everything he had accomplished, he was fearful that the Pantheon, or Algalon, the, of course, the appointed watcher from the Pantheon, the Constellar, would one day return to Azeroth, and if that happened, they would discover Loken's crimes and punish him. But in truth, of course, Yogg-Saron was the greatest threat. He was just beneath Loken's feet and was beginning to work himself free from his prison. And then after Loken expected that the other keeper, Ra, would emerge, you know, from wherever he was down south in Kalimdor to see what was going on in Alduar. But to Loken's surprise, Ra had been silent the whole time and did not show his face anywhere. So, you know, so curious trying to figure out where Ra was, Loken sent some of his army down south to Uldum to see where Ra was. They never found the High Keeper, but they did talk to the local Mogu, Tolvir, and the Anubisaths that Ra had left behind, and they confirmed that Ra had vanished. And what Loken didn't know, and neither did the Titan Forged, I guess, was that Ra had experienced a revelation. When the Pantheon's power and memories had been infused into its keepers when their souls came down to Azeroth, Ra, you know, was confused like his siblings, but he ended up concluding that it was more than just some strange anomaly, some strange thing. And he finally kind of came to the conclusion that this power was the last remnant of the Pantheon spirits. And of course, he struggled greatly to accept the fact that his creators and the Pantheon had fallen. But he managed to extract the lingering power of Amonthul from himself and stored it within a vault in what would be known as later the Veil of Eternal Blossoms. It was there Highkeeper Ra hoped that he could preserve whatever was left of his creator, Amonthul. And then after that, Ra retreated back into the catacombs beneath the lands to meditate. And with him gone, his loyal titan forged, developed new cult cultures uh, distinct from the others. Of course, you see that in game, you know, very differently between the two, all the titan forged. The Tolvir congregated around Uldum. The Anubisaths uh, continued to watch over the prison of Cthulhu, And the Mogu of course, would end up, you know, later on in Pandaria. But they remained, you know, to the east at the time and guarded the Titan-forged vaults and the other machines buried beneath the earth. And still during this time, the Titan-forged who were exiled from Alduar after Loken shut it off continued to spread across what was then northern Kalimdor. You know, you had lumbering giants that would trickle into the mountains across the region and the seas. 
and when they nestled into these deep places of the world, they would fight against the Trog for uh, dominance of the area. Many of the Vrykul remained above ground and kind of made the small clans we see. Some factions wandered across the northern landscape as nomads, and others kind of dwelled across the forested tundra of the area. There was kind of a peace between these groups of Titanforged at first, but in time, you know, forces would move around, assert dominion in the lands that were really no longer protected by the Keepers at all. The only people left would kind of be the dragon aspects, which we'll get to later. And among these forces were two of Loken's own creations, the two fire giants he had used to kind of smoke Hodir out before he took him. Of course, their names were Vulcan and Ignis. Vulcan and Ignis saw the storm peaks around Ulduar as a land, you know, that they could conquer. But of course, to do that, they would need an army. So they turned to the Winter Scorn clan of the Vrykul. And despite being pretty warlike in nature, the Vrykul at this point tried to avoid direct confrontation with each other. But the Winter Scorn were quite the exception. They had developed an especially <laughs> unique culture of violence and aggression. Because um, they still thought that, you know, they didn't know what happened to Odin. They still thought that if they fought and died in battle, they'd ascend to the Halls of Valor. Something which we know now wouldn't be true. They'd go down to Helheim. Uh, so they thrived on conflict. And whether that was between members of their own clan or other groups of nearby Titanforged. So Vulcan and Ignis took control of the Winter Scorn by force, you know, got them ready for battle, you know, fed upon that kind of, you know, drive for battle they had so much. And they also forged powerful weapons that would allow the Winter Scorn to much easier shatter the iron and stone skin of their other Titanforged brethren. But it was actually just now that the anomalies from the corrupted machines had begun to appear on the Winter Scorn. Their metallic skin became brittle and weak, and this was the first actual real symptom you could see of the curse of flesh. But despite this odd setback, Vulcan and Ignis did not abandon their campaign. But they also knew that they could not rely on the Winter Scorn alone now. So to strengthen their army, Vulcan and Ignis created powerful molten golems, you know, big iron tough guys of their own design. And now you know, alongside the golems, the massive Winter Scorn army marched against whoever would stand against them in the Storm Peaks. But despite most all of their enemies dying, some did manage to escape, and they figured they'd try to get the help of Tyr, Arcadis, and Ironia, who were still in the Storm Peaks, but had still managed to elude Loken's wrath. Loken would still not even know they were there, which pretty much just under his nose. And quickly, Tyr learned what had happened. And he and his companions quickly journeyed to the Earthern's cavern home to aid these Titanforged. Tyr himself led the bravest of the Earthern, you know, to fight back against the Winter Scorn, while Arcadis and Ironia constructed defenses to ward off future attacks. In time, the Earthern and their allies would actually drive back their Winter Scorn. But, despite the attempt um, and that their attack on the Storm Peaks had failed, Vulcan and Ignis did not concede defeat. They returned back to their forges, created a newer army that was even greater than before, and they figured they weren't satisfied with just the golems and constructs. They actually made special enchanted snares so that they could enslave proto-dragons to fight for them. And they wouldn't just serve as mounts, um, they would actually mainly serve as beats of war, you know, that would fight directly themselves with, for their full might. And they even went so far as to outfit the dragons with weapons too, with whatever they needed. And the, in the next assault by the Winter Scorn, led by 
the Giants was much more brutal than before. They shattered through the Earthern's defenses and drove them from their refuge. The Earthern then scattered across the icy mountain pass, but unfortunately they could not escape the winter scorn. The Vrykul and Golems hunted, you know, they hunted everywhere, while the Proto-Dragons would just assail them from the skies. Even Tyr, Arcadus, and Ironia were forced to flee. Um, there was nothing they could do, the army was too great. But Tyr didn't want to give up, even though he did know that he could not defeat the Winter Scorn alone, so he called upon the Dragon Aspects for help. And the Aspects grew enraged, seeing so many dead Titan forged, seeing that Proto-Dragons had been enslaved, so there wasn't really any hesitation, they quickly took flight to attack the Winter Scorn. And just kind of like what they'd done against Galakron, they worked in unison great, uh, they overwhelmed the Vrykul army, Alex Straza mainly held the Winter Scorn at bay with, you know, walls of fire, Malagos would drain the essence of the golems and make them absolutely useless, he would also shatter the snares that bound the proto-dragons and set the beasts free, Neltharion would raise large mountains to kind of contain the Vrykul and trap them and their giant masters, and Ysera and Nosdormu would combine their powers and create a massive spell that would kind of bring an end to the conflict. They would envelop the Winter Scorn in this mist that would cause all the Titan Forge to fall asleep. And now incapacitated, they would lock them away in tomb cities across what was now still northern Kalimdor, even though the exact location would change a little bit when the continent finally changed. But anyway, the sleep forced upon them was not the peaceful great sleep of the Emerald Dream, um, it was instead a timeless, unconscious slumber. You know, much definitely not as nice as the Emerald Dream. And in the millennia to come, the Curse of Flesh would continue warping the sleeping Winter Scorn, you know, turning them into creatures of flesh and blood. And when they finally awoke, eventually, they would discover that pretty much just about every single one of them had now kind of degenerated into these, you know, really mortal creatures made of just flesh and blood, not the stone and metal that they had previously been made of. And of course, the curse of flesh and blood is how, you know, the normal races of Azeroth we see now would be made in the future. But that about wraps it up for now, for this episode, you know, just over an hour and a pretty decent stopping point. So the next episode probably will be Warcraft related again, episode three. Um, I don't know if I'll continue on with the timeline. I'm, I kind of want to do a Shadowlands episode, you know, just on the lore of that it could be pretty interesting especially with the new information uh, we've been getting as I record this about the expansion. But anyway, I uh, hope you'll join me again for the next one, and probably the time after that I'll do an old-school RuneScape episode too, so that's also in the works. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope to see you next time.